So I got to begin with a disclaimer um, as we get into the message this morning. This me- this message is going to be heavy. It's dense. All right, you probably could tell that that is a dense piece of scripture, and I'm going to do my best to unpack it for you. But we're going to be looking through a lot of different pieces of scripture today. We're going to be spending most of our time in the Old Testament, actually, um, even though Jude is a book of the New Testament. So I, I advise you buckle up, bear with me, try to stay with me, because uh, we've got a lot of material to cover today. Um, but last week we started this new ser- uh, sermon series on the book of Jude. It's a short book. It's an often overlooked book. It's only one chapter. Um, it's a very dense book, as I said. And last week, if you were here, we, we talked about who the author of Jude was, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. We talked about when it was probably written, sometimes in the mid-50s or 60s AD, so very, very close to uh, the time that Jesus was alive. Um, and then we talked about who Jude was writing to and why he was writing. Okay, And so if you remember, Jude was writing to a local church that he was probably involved with or knew, and he was writing with them to contend for the faith, to keep the faith, to defend the faith. Why was he writing that? Because, as Jude says, um, some people had slipped in, certain individuals had slipped into the church, and they were basically, these, these were false teachers. They were teaching false things about God, about themselves. And so Jude is like, okay, i got to write to you and straighten this out, because we cannot allow this to ferment in the church. Um and you know, Jude, as you probably gathered from that passage, he doesn't hold back any punches, does he? He's not trying to be subtle. He's not trying to be kind or treading on eggshells, but he's, he's saying it how it is. And, and you know, it's a reminder to us as we look through these verses that yes, as Christians, we're, we have to be full of grace and love and compassion, especially with our interactions with others and people who don't believe. But, there are also times where we need to tear down arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. There is a place where we have to say, this is ungodly, this is wrong, this is a disservice to our God, and it needs to, it needs to be called out. So there's a, there's a place, right? Always with grace, but where we have to be courageous, we have to be bold, and we have to be uncompromising in taking apart false teachings in the church. So with that in mind, with that disclaimer, let's see what Jude has to say about these false teachers. So as I mentioned, we're going to spend quite a bit of uh, time in the Old Testament this morning. We're going to be jumping to quite a few scriptures, and I apologize if it leaves your head spinning a little bit, but we've got to have the context here to understand what Jude's talking about. Now what Jude says in verse 5 gives us a hint to the makeup of this church that he is uh, writing to you, because he begins with, though you already know this, though you already know this. So Jude's saying, what I'm about to share with you, I know you're already familiar with, right? And he's about to share some examples from the Old Testament, and he knows that these stories and these things from the Hebrew scriptures and the traditions um, are going to be familiar to them. So what that suggests is that much of this church was Jewish converts, Okay, they, they were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, with the Old Testament, as we call it. Jude knows his audience, and he knows how to relate to them and what's going to connect with them, what's going to make sense to them. 
So verses 5 to 7, what Jude does is he gives us three examples from the Old Testament. It's a little triad of examples of uh, comparisons to what these false teachers are like that they're dealing with today. So we're going to take a, a little look through these three examples, right? In verse 5, he says, though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, before we go any further, I want to play a little game with you. All right? You guys like games? Yeah? Um, you're familiar with that game, Spot the Difference? Yeah, I, I love this game because I'm, you know, I like it because I'm good at it, right? But, you know, it, it generally goes like this. You get two pictures side by side. They're identical pictures, yeah? And then you have to split. And you're told there's six little differences between this picture and that, right? And it's usually little things like, oh, there's a stripe missing off the sweater or, you know, there's a, a leg missing off a chair, right? And you know what happens, right? You always get five really quickly and then there's that one, isn't there? We're like, hey, what is it? What is it? Well, I want to play a little bit of spot the difference, Okay? And what I want to do for you is I want to read um, verse 5 for you again in the NIV translation. That's the, the typical translation we use, the New International Version. It's a great translation. But I, I want to read this to you, and then I'm going to read to you um, the same verse, but from a different translation. I just realized I don't have this in my notes, so I'm going to pull it up right here. So this is Jude chapter 5, sorry, verse 5. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, let me read to you the same verse, but from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And see if you can spot the difference. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Spot the difference? What's that? Yeah, the ESV version. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Herb. Jesus. Did you notice that? The NIV says the Lord. The ESV says Jesus. And when you look at the Greek text that are, that are, that are, that are used the most for the biblical translations, the word there is Jesus. It's Jesus in Greek. It's Jesus. It's not Kyrios, this other Greek word, which means Lord. Some manuscripts do use that. But there's a bigger point here. Jesus is the one who delivered the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. And right there, you've got an amazing example of the pre-incarnate Jesus. In other words, Jesus, before he became one of us, before he became human, moving and working. It's an extra little nudge, a little point that Jesus is God. He has always existed. How cool is that? I, I think that's really cool, but, you know, I'm a seminary nerd, so... But you know what? Why would, you, why would Jude use that? Why would he say, use the name of Jesus? Well, because again, it's emphasizing Jesus' divinity. And this was an area that the false teachers were challenging. So it's a little, little insert by Jude that like, yeah, Jesus is God. 
Okay, so the first example Jude gives us is of Jesus delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. But if you don't know the story, what happened after they were freed from Egypt? Well, the generation that was freed from slavery in Egypt, they never got to see the promised land that had been promised to them except for Joshua and Caleb. And there was a reason for this. After they were freed from slavery, Moses sends an exploratory team of 12 men, one from each tribe of, of, of uh, Israel. And he sends them out to scout this, the land of Canaan. This is the promised land that God has promised to the Israelites. And when they return and they report, 10 out of 12 of the men, they're full of fear. That they're really worried because they've seen these fortified towns and they see they have giants there, these huge people, and they're terrified that we're not going to be able to take the land. We don't believe we can do this. In other words, they're questioning God and his authority and what he has destined for them and saying, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to rebel against you and do something else. Only Joshua and Caleb are full of faith that they can take the land. And so what happens? The people begin to complain. They begin to turn on Moses and Aaron who are leading the people, saying, you know, we're going to stone you. They begin to rebel against what the Lord has told them. And so let's pick it up in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Numbers 14, and we're going to read verses 26 to 30 and then verse 35. Numbers 14, beginning at verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. And then verse 35 I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So God's judgment has fallen upon that generation of the Israelites because they rebelled against God. They rejected his authority. And frankly, they were walking in unbelief. They did not believe and trust that God would be true to his word. So that's the first example. The second example that Jude gives us is in verse 6. And Jude says the following. It says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Okay. This is where it gets funky. Because what Jude is referencing here is from actually from Genesis chapter 6. Again, it's a Jewish audience. They know these scriptures. They know what he's talking about. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. If you've got your Bible, it's the first book in the Bible. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim 
were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings, isn't it? But it's scripture, so we've got to take it seriously. So what's going on there? Well, uh, there are multiple interpretations of Genesis 6, but one of the most popular understandings of this passage, both in Jewish and Christian tradition, and I think probably the most likely explanation, is that this is in the times of Noah. Okay, we all heard of Noah and the flood, right? So this is pre-flood times, okay? This is a very, very mysterious period of human history, okay, in the times of Noah. There's so much we don't know. But what we do know is that humanity has fallen into the deepest levels of depravity and sin. Humanity is getting to the point where it's a lost cause. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I sometimes wonder, looking around our world today, if we are getting there again. There's a lot of evil in people's hearts, and we're seeing it manifested in our society far too much. What's going on here? Here's the interpretation. Is that fallen angels, the sons of God, have disobeyed God, and they've left their angelic realm to engage in unnatural sexual union with human women. Right? Genesis 6.2 tells us the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any they chose. Well, who are the sons of God? Well, angels are described as sons of God elsewhere in the Bible. For example, if you look at Job chapter 1, verse 6, they're called sons of God, the angels are. In chapter 2, verse 1, they're called sons of God. And so here, when Jude talks in verse 6 about these angels having abandoned their proper dwelling place, it's probably a reference to these sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6 who took human women for their wives. Now, what does that imply? That implies marriage. And what does marriage imply? It implies sexual union. This is traditionally what people say produced the Nephilim. These hybrid beings, half human, half fallen angel. That would be the plain meaning of the text. And you know what? It also makes sense in terms of why God decided to send the flood. Why he essentially wanted to restart with the human race because of this wickedness and the inclination of the human heart always towards evil. Humanity had become so defiled And the Adamic line, that line back to Adam, had become so messed up, so tainted, that God needed to reset the path of the human race. And so he sent the flood because of how corrupt the world had become. So Jude has given us the example of the Israelites disobeying God in the wilderness and their punishment. Secondly, Jude has given us the example of fallen angels in disobedience to God, leaving their their proper realm and um, having mating with humans. And then thirdly, Jude gives us the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 7, it says, In a similar way, this is Jude, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. 
They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So what was the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah? Again, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go to Genesis chapter 19. And we're going to read verses 1 to 5. Genesis 19, 1 to 5. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Oh, let me explain the situation here before we get there. So verse chapter 18 of Genesis tells us that there has been a great outcry to the Lord about just all the evil and terrible things going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jesus has sent two angels to the town, and this is where we pick up in Genesis 19. Two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Lot is Abraham's nephew, by the way. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now, let's go back to Jude chapter, sorry, verse 7. Jude says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. I want to focus on that word perversion for a moment, because in the Greek, that word perversion is actually a phrase in the Greek. And it actually means going after other flesh going after other flesh. So you could now literally translate Jude 7 more like this. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and going after other flesh. What does that mean? Well, it could mean that the men were going after uh, flesh other than the flesh of women, such as the flesh of men. It could mean that it was the flesh of animals. That was how depraved we'd got here. Or it could mean that the flesh... Of angels, or it could mean all three. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah were interested in having sex with the two angels. And we don't know if they knew they were angels or not. But you know, there's a bigger point going on here, both in Genesis and Jude, that they are both making here. And it's that the sexual immorality. And the perversion, the going after other flesh, it had gotten so depraved, it had gotten so out of control, it had got so godless, so unhinged, that God brought judgment upon those towns, upon those cities, and they were destroyed. Now there's a word that sums up all three examples that Jude just gave us. That sums up the Israelites in the wilderness disobeying God, the angels leaving their proper dwelling place, and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah giving themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. There's one word that sums up all three of those examples. It's the word rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion against God. Rebellion against God's design and plan for creation, God's design and plan for angels, and God's design and plan for humanity. Right? There's a natural order that God has set up, and in one way or another, all three examples here have given, have violated that order. 
the Israelites in the wilderness, right? What was the natural order here? The natural order is they would be freed from Egypt and that same generation would enter the promised land under God's blessing. Instead, they are judged and punished for their unbelief. With the angels, they violated the natural order for angels, which is that they were to remain in their proper dwelling place and they were never created by God to procreate with humans. It was a complete violation of what God had made angels for. And then thirdly, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah have rebelled against God's natural order for sexual union through all kinds of sexual immorality and perversion. And so Jude sums up all three in verse 7. He says, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Folks, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. And you know, the same is true for us today. I was just talking with some, some folks the other day about, have you, have you noticed how, how dark everything is? Ah, uh, we were talking about, if you watched a movie, say, that was made 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, the difference in the tone of the movies, right? Have you noticed that everything coming out today either has some kind of ideology or agenda they're trying to push on you, or it's dark. It's dark. Everything coming out today is dark and dark, and it's graphically violent, it's graphically sexual. You watch something from 20 years ago, and it's shocking the difference, isn't it? That, you know, there's no such thing as a light, fun film anymore, movie, is there? Where you can just relax, and there's no, no agenda, it's just let's have fun, let's have a good, wholesome movie. It's so, it's so hard to come by today. There's this darkness falling on society, and you know why? It's because we are all rebels at heart. Our natural bent is to rebel against God, to rebel against his word, right? To rebel against the order that God has set up for human flourishing. We're we're rebels at heart. And we're lost without the saving grace of Christ. We're going to come back to that at the end. Now you might be wondering, what's Jude's point here? What is his point with giving us these examples? Why is he giving us three examples of rebellion against God? Well, in verse 8, we get the answer. He's using these as a comparison to the false teachers in the church that he's addressing. Verse 8, Jude says, in the very same way. So he's saying, likewise, with these people, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. So Jude accuses them of three charges there, and he says they're related to the three examples that we've just looked at. Right? They pollute their own bodies. Well, that's connected to the sexual immorality and perversion. They reject authority. That's connected to the Israelites in the wilderness rejecting God's authority. And they heap abuse on celestial beings. Well, this would be akin to the men who wanted to have sex and abuse the angels. Now, Jude elaborates on the third charge of heaping abuse on celestial beings in verse 9. Listen to verse 9 again. But even the angel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. It's a pretty fascinating piece of scripture, isn't it? Because if you know your Bible, you'll know that that's nowhere to be found in the Bible, except here. So what is going on there? Remember, who's Jude's audience? 
Jewish believers who've converted to Christianity. And so what Jude is actually doing here is he's drawing on an ancient Jewish book called the Testament of Moses, sometimes also called the Assumption of Moses. And the the early church fathers were aware of this book. Uh, Clement was aware of it. But today we don't know too much about it because we only have one copy, an incomplete manuscript of it that was from the 6th century. So clearly in Jude's time, though, they knew this work. And it's well known enough that uh, Jude referenced it. Now, what's Jude's point here? Well, Jude's point is that while even the archangel Michael did not heap abuse on the devil during this dispute over Moses' body, but instead called upon the power of the Lord, these false teachers have no respect for authority or celestial powers. And as Jude puts it in verse 10, these people, they slander whatever they do not understand. Now, if you notice there, there's a connection here between rebellion and a lack of respect or a rejection of authority. And that's what we see these false teachers are doing. They're rebelling against God and against his authority. And instead, what are they doing? They're claiming their own authority. We actually see that a lot today in our society. You know what it looks like? It looks like the glorification of the self as the ultimate source of authority and truth. That's why you hear all the time today people saying, I'm living out my truth. I'm in control of my life. I'm empowered. All I need to do is look within. But I'm living out my truth. That's coming from a place of thinking that you are the sole authority of yourself. And that's not what scripture tells us. It's also very typical on a times for people to slander what they do not understand. Have you noticed that? That people often will just reflexively reply or snap at something that they don't understand and try to shut it down, try to silence it because they don't understand it. You know, and that's, for example, why so many people slander God. Why they make fun of people of faith. They make fun of you for believing in Jesus. It's why so many people are getting wrapped up in occultic practices. Wicca is on the up and up right now, witchcraft. And do you know where it's especially popular among teenage girls? There is a deliberate marketing scheme to target teenage girls to get involved with Wicca and occultic practices. And what do they do to make it enticing? The emphasis is is on power, on self-empowerment. You can be your own authority. That's why people are getting sucked into new age practices, crystals and all this kind of stuff. It's all about, you know what, it's all inward focused. It's not outward focused towards other people. And you know, the thing is, people often do and practice these things in ignorance. It's not like... Most people who get involved with this, they're not bad people, so to speak. But they do it out of ignorance. They don't know any better. Because they're not being taught to avoid these things. It's also part of that rebel in us that naturally wants to do what is ungodly. We are drawn to these things. And that's why Jude says at the end of verse 10, he says, The very things they do understand by instinct 
as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So what can we take away from this? Well, the main theme here in this scripture is rebellion. It's rebellion against God and the terrible consequences of rebelling against God, which is the punishment of eternal fire, as it says in verse 7. What does rebellion against God look at look like? Well, it can look like many things, but I'm just going to highlight three based on what we have read in Jude today. So rebellion can look like disobeying God's plan and direction for your life, just like the Israelites in the wilderness did. Right? They rejected God's plan. God had a specific plan. He said, this is what we're going to do. And they said, no, we're not doing that. I don't believe you. I don't think you're true to your word. And we're going to do our own thing. Because we're going to claim that authority for ourselves. So rebellion can look like disobeying God's plan and direction for your life. Secondly, it can look like sexual immorality and perversion. Right? Going against what God has ordained as, as good for human flourishing. But you know what? It can also mean going after unnatural things such as the occult. Searching for hidden special knowledge that we're not supposed to have. And thirdly, it can look like rejecting authority. Okay, we, we see that in, in, in many ways in society today, right? There's obviously, there's been a big um, decay, a descent in, in um, authority for things like law and, and, the, and, and judges and all these kind of things, right? We're seeing that in our society. But you know what? It goes deeper than that. Because the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the supreme authority in my own life? Is it God or is it yourself? And this is where I would encourage us all to take the antidote to rebellion. What's the antidote? It's surrender. It's submission to Jesus. And if you haven't done that yet, then do it today. I can pray with you. You can give your life to the Lord and it's going to be the beginning of an amazing journey. And I want to encourage you that for all of you who already have, if you've made that step, then make a step to recommit yourself to Jesus. Examine places in your own life where you're still not fully surrendered to Jesus. Is there a place in your life like, I'm not, I'm not giving this part to you, Lord. I got to, I got to hold on to this. Give it to Jesus. Because it's where you'll find your true joy and your true contentment. Let's pray.